Hello and welcome back to Voicecraft. Joining me for this dialogue is Greg Enriquez, an award-winning professor of graduate psychology at James Madison University. A man with a rare combination of deep expertise and a breadth of integrated perspective to match. This is an exciting conversation, I think, and my sense after only coming to knowledge of Greg's work a matter of weeks ago is that this is someone who will have a deep impact on the future of the science of psychology or die trying. There's energy and insight here that will be very worthwhile for some of you to investigate and track further. But before we get to our conversation, I'm going to say a few things that feed into each other. As I reflect on the library of content this podcast features, it hasn't at all been about providing a 101 overview or introduction to someone's thinking, and this has created dissonance at times. When I speak to someone, I seek to arrive as quickly and as appropriately as possible to a shared relationship with possibility. Okay, well, perhaps we can think about it better like this. The movements of understanding or the practice of dialogical transformation at the core of this project, if it flows and if it is most effective, arrives at the most significant adjacent possible available to mutual understanding. Co-creating, creating together in relationship. This is not so easy. There are many obstacles, social, cognitive, normative, logistical, game theoretic, that trust and vulnerability and time and credibility thing, you name it. Now, this is also a podcast. So when I sit down to record with someone that is in mind, and I do care about creating things that are deeply helpful and to take responsibility for my part in the content commons. And so I do aspire to create an art form that serves both the ends of generativity and the necessary sense of engagement and context that properly serves you, the listener, especially as this project continues to and will expand its invitations to participate in the emergent conversation. You can follow the links to check that out. To put it a slightly different way and to foreground the theory and dynamic, I believe will become more clear over the coming years and decades, this art form here aspired to will come to be seen as a practice somewhat akin to an emergent archetype of collective realization. So now back to Greg. I'm going to give a short introduction to Greg's thinking, not to articulate his theory and not to speak for him, but to set the scene, offer some background context to help you make sense of the conversation that follows. As far as I can tell, Greg Enriquez seems to be here to wake the world of psychology up again, to the importance of the very what that the science of psychology seeks to understand. And man, it's funny how the what in things gets lost. The what to care about, hey? As I think about it, it's quite machine-like, this way we confuse ourselves. A machine consists of the scripted processes it runs, its method without understanding of a more essential nature of reality within which or upon which its processes operate, a machine might have functions or imperatives, whether to carry out intended tasks with precision or effectively generate paper clips, but it's missing something vital. Someone might make the same case for human beings, of course, doomed to ultimate ignorance as to what we participate in. I don't think we all conceive our limitations in just that way. It's rather that we've placed dead limitations on what the what could be and more importantly, stifled our capacity to be in relationship with the ongoing realization of that what. I think we've rather forgotten what maybe was once known like the wisp of a dream, the deep quest of knowing ourselves, each other, and the world in favor of knowledge about how to optimize for games we play within it, this bloody issue of survival and fear and attachment. We can weep for that, but not all the time. 
it's a thesis of this project that we need to reimagine the games themselves, the maps themselves, not for the maps or the games themselves, but for the vitality and wonder to be realized in the process of the game making, the map making, the love making. But I will leave this as gesture. Now, the problem of psychology that Greg takes his work to attempt to resolve is this. If you take a 101 psych course, you will likely learn that psychology is the science of behavior and mental processes. But the problem is that psychology has sought to adhere to the methods of science without an adequate unified sense of what the reference behavior and mental processes really mean and really are. There are many approaches within psychology that define the terms in different ways, but they are often in conflict, so it goes which amounts to increasing fragmentation theoretically and clinically. So Greg's work is a response to this problem by way of what he terms the unified theory, part of which is the tree of knowledge system, which offers a map of cosmic evolution as an unfolding wave of behavioral complexity. He wants to coherently define behavior and mental processes in a system of descriptive metaphysics, a map that not only makes sense of the history of our reality, but one that also nods to the conditions and dynamics which may precede a radical phase transition or emergence of a novel dimension of complexity that may be just around the corner. If you would like to participate in conversations, you can go and follow the links in the description. Uh, there are conversations happening all the time. To the extent I put out conversations these days without offering those invitations, I think it's an error and not what it could be, and not part, ultimately, of the philosophical art that must be created in our time. Okay, thank you for being here for the journey. We're in it together. Let's go. So, Greg, I have just encountered your work. And I am aware it's very broad in scope and that makes framing a conversation that might introduce some of your work and some of your ideas and who you are a bit challenging and it gives me an opportunity to open things in a way that I personally am most interested to open. And um, perhaps that is with the most broad of questions. So when you close your eyes and perhaps not, not, you know, now or in the last few seconds, but when you find yourself closing your eyes and you are attending to just what the hell is going on and perhaps not in a way that's too confrontational, like what the hell is going on here? You know, <laughs> not necessarily chaotic, but just yep. encountering that presence. Like it's yes. a familiarity and you Absolutely. exist and we exist and here we are. Yes. How have you, begun to make sense of the phenomenon of life? Great. That's a wonderful entry question, because what the hell is going on is a great way of describing <laughs> um, my logos into phenomenology, as you will. You know, the what the hell is going on right now is particularly poignant, of course, uh, with the context of the virus and the world experience of, of change and despair and hope. So I've been, ever since, you know, the shutdown and, and through March, I've been 
experience and a lot of what the hell is going on in terms of the global Kairos of the moment. And that speaks to me in the deep ways of both crisis and opportunity as uh, in terms of I see what is going on as, as a crisis uh, of our modern global experience. I also see it as an opportunity. And I also feel uh, very much woven into the fabric of it, quite frankly. I, I feel very connected to it and simultaneously hopeful and despairing. Mm. Yeah, this uh, relationship between hope and despair. So perhaps you find yourself, at least in part, sort of in, within this crisis, perhaps because of your um, work and practice as a psychologist and clinical psychologist. But I also know you have a deep interest in metaphysics. And so in what ways do those features of how you show up in the world help articulate for our listeners how you right. find yourself now? Sure. Um, uh, so one is, uh, if I just put it in uh, sort of direct terms for, for me, one is the relational phenomenological world uh, as a clinician. I sort of have an intuitive and have cultivated an empathetic experience where I connect to people. I mean, that's what you need to do uh, as a clinician, connect with the affective phenomenological core of people. And I'm experiencing this globally then, uh, you know, in terms of the amount of suffering that the wave of uh, the medical crisis followed by the economic crisis, followed by the chaos and the uncertainty about what the transition will be, um, it, it impacts me, basically. Um, mm. So, you know, it's a, uh, I don't do, I have a small clinical practice, but I, you know, both supervise and talk with a lot of clinicians. I know that there are a lot of, uh, in a more raw and immediate sense, I know a lot of um, clinicians who are on the front lines, as it were, of, of at least the mental health crisis and um, their own experiences of 25, 30, 35 hours a week on Zoom, listening to a person, one person after another who's just feels trapped or uh, unbelievably anxious or dealing with a, an entire medical crisis, you know, of a family. And so I'm fairly close to some of those stories. And, uh, and my clinical side, you know, I, I would stop being a clinician if I stopped feeling that. Mm. So... Mm. So that's, yeah, you. that's, that's real. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I also, uh, you know, know what's good for me is to attend to that, but also recognize my local situation is remarkably um, safe and uh, content relative to the number, amount of suffering that uh, other people are dealing with. And it's also important for me not to uh, get lost in that suffering um, so that mm -hmm. I can make my own perspective and, and own local garden, as it were, I use a fair number of garden metaphors, tend to my garden, have it grow first, because I have the um, fortunate capacity to not be in the, in the wake, in the immediate destructive wake of, of the systemic changes that are unfolding. Mm. So that's, you know, my, that my, the clinician in me is what's, what is the imagined person across from the road? Uh, and, and, and as a clinician, you deal with somebody who's suffering when they walk into the room, almost always. Yeah. I work with side detectors, so... Uh, and, and for five years, four years, when I was at the University of Pennsylvania, that's all I worked with. So I, I have a, and so borderline, so personality disorders, depression, suicide, that's my area of expertise. And needless to say, that's 
mm. a domain, you know, a pretty heartfelt trauma and tragedy. On the flip side of it, when I think metaphysics, I actually think more, I'm in my more hopeful unified theory space. I'm, I'm, mm. I'm more in the, um, if we get the Kairos of the moment right, and, you know, people like yourself and John Verbeke and other visionaries start to get networked together in a collective intelligence, uh, and we don't get brutalized completely globally by a depression or a series of events uh, that knocks uh, our global system on its ass. Um, and we're actually, but enough to jolt us, to wake us up to the next 20 years uh, where we actually make cumulative change in the right way because we understand the actual situation that we're in and we build the right, what I would call the dis right descriptive metaphysical systemic language that enables us to effectively talk about what we are and what we're doing and what we can do. And um, that's, my, that's my hope. I see a lot of awakening collective intelligence in the right direction. Um, and if that we can make the transition from, you know, the blue church, uh, I heard your Jordan Paul discussion, the, the old institutions and their old metaphysical commitment, inadequate metaphysical commitments, uh, if we can make the right transition, I get very, very hopeful of the kind of uh, world we might create. Yeah, that's beautiful, Greg. Mm. So in this hopeful look towards some state of affairs where we have increasing connectivity and capacity for collaboration between those who would truly be open to collaboration mm -hmm. in such a way that, well, beginning to define it or articulate it from the perspective of metaphysics, or at least what questions with elegance is not so simple, but something like how can we, you know, Nora Bateson wrote a, a really beautiful line in a recent essay an articulation of vitality as relationships that build life, that build relationships, yes. that build relationships, that build yes. relationships. I probably snuck in an extra relationships there, of course. But <laughs> well, it's a, we want, we want the echo, don't we? Yeah. Amen. I, I would just say, so for me, right, there's um, the core of our uh, socio-emotional soul is the need for what I call relational value. This is uh, the experience of being known and valued by important others in our world. Um, so we seek to be known and valued in just the right way. That's what, that's what, what our, our childhood heart wants. Um, our parents to look at us and delight in us as they protect us, our lover to desire us. Um, it's the process by which we're known and valued by important others. And really we wanna create a, a relational society um, that we can mutually maximize uh, uh, with authenticity and integrity. Mm -hmm. that experience of being known and done. Mm. And so, you know, an interesting question might be, what are the wisdoms? <laughs> what are key things we should be aware of in this hopeful movement towards establishing the kind of network relationships which can be appropriately open and in touch with the life-giving ecology around us, both cultural and in nature. And that just opens up to so much complexity. And, ah. But there you go. <laughs> well, right. Uh, that's a wonderful uh, way of framing the complexity of, of the problem. 
uh, and it is how do we align our natures uh, with each other, uh, the technological and environmental situations we find ourselves in a way that orients us toward the good, with the good being grounded, I think, in the relational value uh, frame in many ways. It's a more complicated question, but that's a central point. And I think that's a point that the modernist version of reality, meaning the enlightenment, modern science, liberal democratic, modern view, uh, misses. It's hyper-individualistic and hyper-self-interested in what it frames it, it, um, our metaphysics of our nature to be. And that's uh, Zach Stein, as you may be familiar with, talked to on the Emerge podcast about the metaphysics of love and having, we need to have a particular language system that helps us understand exactly what that is. That's not oxytocin chemicals bouncing in our nervous system. Um, that's a materialistic flatland disaster view uh, and a completely erroneous view. So I have lots to say about that question, some of which would go into getting the right metaphysics, some of which would go into getting the right ecology of practices, to use John Berbeke's term, to get the, the right dialogos for us uh, so that we can connect horizontally with each other and vertically from my head into my heart and my body and create a, a harmonizing synergy that allows mm -hmm. us to be known and valued and, 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 and work together in solving the actual problems that we need to be confronted and directed at. Yeah, I hear you. I'd be interested in getting your response to a way of speaking about the dialogical process that I seem to resonate with a lot at the moment. It's how I at least introduce some conversations I have and relate to them myself. And that is a certain kind of dialogical conversation which enables a movement of understanding. So movement there is some kind of... Um, well, just briefly a nod to the processual nature mm -hmm. of our mm -hmm. interdependence and the seeming cycles of different states of awareness, different kinds of knowing, but also um, the almost, in, almost invariability of our forgetting. Uh, there's somewhat of an open question there as to what may be possible at the very edges of awareness in terms of the, the continuity that's enabled. I do think there's something to be said for striving for a continuity of awareness, but we seem to forget, eh? and perhaps the forgetting is, is necessary for the remembering. Um, and then there's this question of understanding, which itself uh, from some angles seems to shift, but nevertheless, we can participate in it and nevertheless with each other, we can be grounded in something valuable, even as that ground itself might move from certain perspectives. So I'd be interested in just your take on how a movement of understanding what that triggers in your, in your, in your mind, in your body. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, I love the word understanding. So a couple of things captured there that I can riff off for, for a bit. Uh, so one of the things, the continuity of experience and also the fading of experience captured me as we ride the wave of our conscious experience and then file away our episodic memories, but lose so much of it, right, in relation. And what is that continuity? And when do we feel like that continuity is coalescing and building in a cumulative sense of understanding? And what I'm 
captured by there is the idea that we're sort of on this, when we're looking to understand, to use the Jordan Peterson frame, it's on the, the edge of the unknown. We, we explore into that which we can't see. We are familiar with our home base, and now we want to find the edge of that. And we are looking to see what's relevant in this new, at the same time we're dancing and moving and, and trying to participate, but in, in a way that may or may not make sense. When we experience understanding, there's some degree of alignment in at least one of our knowing systems, uh, to use John Berbeke's four Ps. So we, are either, we either have a perceptual gestalt um, that allows our perspectival knowing to see, or we get a propositional understanding that allows us to unfreeze our belief and rearrange them and move for us to accommodation and then grow into assimilation propositionally. Or we experience that participatory dance, you know, like a jazz session between people. And then we, we feel known in relation. Our, our, our intuitive inner subjectivities are like, oh, hey, I don't, I don't, Tim, I haven't met you very long, but man, I kind of resonate with you, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and experience that. So a lot of things come up for me when we start to think about understanding and knowing and continuity. And I am seeking understanding in many ways. I'll often say that wisdom and understanding are two unbelievably foundational words for me. Mm. So I, I it, it is the fundamental, more than knowing, it's the fundamental experience of understanding, which is broader in many ways. Knowing is more propositional, understanding, more participatory and perspectival and, and grounded and embodied. Yeah, particularly important when we come into touch with other people who, well, might recoil from our touch, uh, not necessarily physically, but let's say, mm -hmm. um, whether energetically or propositionally, psychologically. Sure. Um, it does seem to be the case that the continued fractionation of society is a possible future, at least in the short term, which could have quite drastic and negative consequences. And indeed already is to some degree. And then in, to some degree, you know, maybe it's appropriate to fractionate if, if there's something dead about the, the, the large, you know, collective, uh, collective block, but navigating difference, opening into a shared space of communication. That is uh, one that enables at least some kind of reciprocity that is a level more reciprocal than, than violence. You know what I'm trying to say, right? <laughs> yes, that, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. What do we have to be aware of? What can we be aware of to help enter into these movements then? How do we invite, I like to think, how do we invite participation in movements of understanding? Great. Yeah, absolutely. And your reflection on that's really key because the framing of that to invite people in is absolutely central. If you don't have uh, sort of the preordained frame upon which the arena that people are entering in, then good luck, you know? And unfortunately, many of our pre-existing institutional frames are essentially designed to do almost the opposite. They are designed to commit you to a particular institute, you know, certainly in the United States, um, our socio-political framing is designed to commit you to one side of the team that is designed not to understand and to design to compete with the other team. That is what, mm -hmm. you know, our political polarization is so dramatic that it's very even hard to find a particular issue uh, that doesn't 
that if you enter at all in any kind of political discussion, immediately is polarized by, you know, you, you are then going to be attacked by the other side, and then you have to decide whether to defend yourself. And the position is not about understanding, but about a primitive game A influence, Machiavellian influence dynamic that is designed uh, to try to wrest power and attention uh, and resources away from some other group uh, and justify the short-term gain of your own group. And, and that is um, that kind of uh, mentality, that kind of interaction, that kind of process is both uh, is too prevalent and is scarily prevalent, certainly in my country's leadership. So, so I just use that as an example about what, how frequently it is that you don't have that and how dangerous it is. And if you try to enter into a game B mindset with people playing game A, good luck. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what does that mean? It means we need to create a metacognitive space of awareness of the rules of this particular kind of, of language and relational game that we are playing. And, and, and it's a game of, of you know, good faith uh, to use Sartre's frame of reference. It's like, okay, I'm gonna commit to certain higher values and I'm gonna commit to particular kinds of uh, ways of relating uh, and, and ways of progressing that enable constructive dialogos. And you don't necessarily need to use those terms. You can just say, hey, I wanna to try to understand you. I wanna understand what your needs and values are. I wanna share what my needs and values are and let's see if we can understand each other. If we have problems, let's see if we can find solutions. And I'm not going to use violence or hostility or character degradation in, in that process. You know, that's not to say I won't I will always agree or won't disagree sharply, but it's to say that we're engaged in a particular kind of process that has rules and values that, that we understand and commit to. And those provide the, the, the guardrails, as it were, at least offer a guardrail frame. Yeah, the question of framing, the frame that is the the thing to be taken space in when we invite it's the direction of the invitation or the kind of it's what's brought along through the invitation this is this really gets to the core of a deep area of interest for me and i think and maybe i think it is on on the frontier of how to make generative steps forward in this space because when we talk about frame making and inviting people into frames we uh <laughs> We have to have a certain amount of self-knowledge of just what, what actual frames we are bringing to bear. And we know, of course, we are complex organisms. And uh, there's part of me that have the frame that we're going to speak to each other for a couple hours here. There's, there's part of me that's going to be hungry in four hours, certainly in 10 hours. If we're still talking by then, I'd be like, Greg, mate, this is not what I intended. I will. Right. I, I think we'll have both said see you by 10 hours. That's certainly my frame. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, and of, and of course it's, and of course it's much more uh, threatening than all of that. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we have this machinery in us. We have this capacity in us to be very moved by the frames of others. And of course the lens of ideology, the lens of various ways of making sense are inform our understanding yeah. of ourselves and the world. And so when we talk about rules, uh, we might talk about the kind of, education that might be required in the ecology to um, have people gain some sort of understanding of these rules. And then I think, well, before that, before that, how can I, and to communicate this to others, 
how to hold oneself, how to come into a kind of awareness of oneself and be in relation to something greater than oneself, a kind of an, on, an ongoing process of frame making that holds the dignity of human beings in critical esteem, that they are part of that process, that there's no frame for me if in some sense um, the invitation is not at least in principle extended to all. Now, that is a crazy thing to say, and I don't mean to say it flippantly because there's so much no, it's to, brilliant, to break actually. down I mean, in all I, of that. I, I think that, well, actually, because I felt like there's a lot of resonance with this, I actually speak that language quite deeply. So I was just nodding along with everything you were saying. <laughs> mm -hmm. So to crystallize a question then might be something like, how do we, so I almost don't want to even frame it. The very act of doing this is, is something I'm, I'm, I'm wary of. Part of me was driven to, to ask, how can we come to an understanding within all the kinds of psychotechnologies that might lend us an understanding, afford us the transformation of our own understanding mm -hmm. of ourselves such that we can extend invitations in more integrity. Yeah. But by the same token, there's something about realizing that frame in dialogical relationship with others that needs to kick in very quickly because it's not me just going off and being isolated writing a whole bunch of stuff and coming out and saying here play my game it's totally. so right yeah uh so anyway this is definitely a lot this is front and center uh to some of the stuff uh, that i've been working on and i can tell you've been working on it also and um so here here's here's what i offer and then and I offer it in the spirit of what I call integrated pluralism, okay? Integrated means that we are going to find a way to share a frame or else, uh, you know, then we won't exchange. So at some level, we have some notion that we will come together and have some reciprocity or else we wouldn't be connected at some level. And at the same time, your frame and perspective uh, and experience is going to create uh, a variation on your experience and position that's different than mine. So there's going to be plurality in relation, in plurality of preference and emphasis and, and value hierarchies and things along those lines. Okay, So, so an integrated pluralism is a dialectic um, between pulling together uh, and allowing for differentiation. So, so that's, a, that's a basic principle. It's actually, by the way, I would consider it a meta-modern principle in many ways, in the sense that sort of modernism, at least a, sort of a narrow version of modernism and its rationalistic conception of one truth, uh, and postmodernism with its fragmented pluralism, uh, an identity of a meta-modern value would be an integrated pluralism that uh, sort of offers a synthesis between the modern thesis and the postmodern antithesis. So there's a um, there's sort of a cultural sensibility uh, that, that would connect there, but really it's like, hey, I have a vision, you have a vision, I bet they overlap some, but I also bet they're different, and let's appreciate that. So that's the first thing. When I'm offering my vision, I, I offer the following. I say that, you know, in terms of the, I have some metacultural values that I commit to. And by metaculture, I mean they extend beyond my nationality, and, and they extend beyond my sense of a Westerner or whatever. They, they, they basically position me as a human in the cosmos and say, all right. And those big three values are dignity, well-being, and integrity. Okay, so those are my big three values. Um, and they represent dignity, the idea of fundamental human dignity is, is the grounds, the national, you know, United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. 
I also mean it more in an incremental way that we can have more or less dignity, respect for ourselves or others, depending on what we do, but that's but it's fundamental dignity. Um, well-being is the mission of the World Health Organization, but basically uh, I spent a lot of time defining what that is technically, but you know, it's essentially health and happiness, biopsychosocial health and happiness. And we want to cultivate that as opposed to suffering, colloquially defined. And integrity really refers to truth and honesty, uh, mm-hmm. to being truth and honest. So, um, so really, it's you know, respect, health and happiness, truth and honesty. Those are, those are the meta-cultural values that I want to play by. And I invite that then. It's like, you know, and if, you know, I hope folks will play that. <laughs> if folks don't want to play that, it's like, okay, well, I don't know that we're, you know, it's going to be now hard to play. You know, it's like, yeah. you know. Yeah. You don't want to agree to those things, then I'm sort of like, uh, you know, do I need to defend myself physically? I don't know. Well, well at least yeah. I'll go away. Um, but yeah. those tend to be pretty broad. Most people find those to be. Yeah, no, I think that's. I think that's absolutely beautiful. I I resonate so strongly. I mean, in in a way, it's kind of like uh, we could we could frame it as a dignity, as in there are multiple players. Well-being, that's a directionality, mm-hmm. and integrity, there's a conduct. Eh, to how mm-hmm. we play the game so there's even and of course there's much more to be said qualitatively for these notions but just structurally we've got here what is necessary to actually play i love the way you're riffing off those things that's why actually that's exactly the design of those things is that people as an integrated pluralistic kind of view you take those each of these poles um, and you suck them and you move them around and you can then project onto them in a wide variety of different ways that's one of the reasons i like them so, for example, you can go good, true, beautiful. So, beauty connects to dignity and the aesthetic value, uh, well-being to goodness uh, and true to integrity. That's just one example. Okay, mm. you hit on the other was a great example, uh, which I hadn't heard before. But I, I've seen lots of people pick up these big three and then juxtapose them in very creative ways that resonate with me with novelty. So that's one of the reasons I like them is that they, mm. they, they do that. And you did a wonderful. Yeah, that was an mm. excellent sample that and just shows it sort of intuitively then it's like yeah okay actually if we have this this is a it's not a it's not a rule-based framing but it's a healthy principle process meta value framing yeah so maybe here is a good opportunity to to talk about what are the kinds of practices or because it's funny because we we've just taken a, a little bit of a of an intellectual approach just for a moment in terms of understanding the importance of these we say can we say is it meta meta virtues what did what what is the well, meta values but yeah meta values yeah. meta cultural values uh, uh, yeah. is the sort of long name for them <laughs> yeah so yeah interesting i wonder so we say meta cultural values how did those values show up you know, I could probably say some things about this, but I'm interested in how, how do those values show up in my experience? Can I relate to myself in a way that's mm-hmm. as helpful as I can relate sort of from this metacultural level using these three tools? Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly, uh, I certainly use them to relate to myself so I can share with that. And then you can see how mm-hmm. that relates with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in fact, uh, You'll see on my signature line, I have what is called my ultimate justification. Okay, so by justification, I mean my propositional guide, uh, which is to be that which enhances dignity and well-being with integrity. So that's the way I arrange them. Okay, be that which enhances dignity and well-being with integrity. 
Um, That's beautiful. So, and when I'm thinking about enhancing dignity, I'm thinking about the fundamental concept of respect. Respect, what do I respect in myself? And how do I be in a particular way that, you know, not in a harsh judgment way. I can talk about it by a complementary to this is my approach to psychological mindfulness called COMMO, which I can talk about, which creates a context, an additional psychotechnology layered context. I spoke with it somewhat about with John. Um, but anyway, it's, it's when do I know, Jordan Peterson talks about this also, you know intuitively when you respect yourself and when you don't. <laughs> You know, so I check myself on that, you know, and, and I have a sense about what I want to be, not in a harsh, critical, internalized parent sort of way, uh, but in a healthy ego way. Well, well, you know, when I look at myself, what is that about uh, and what do I value uh, in, in a healthy way about me and what not so much? And how do I relate to that in a healthy way? So mm -hmm. uh, and then there's well-being. Well-being, like I said, is uh, in a simple way. It's it's I love Khan has a phrase for well-being called happiness with the worthiness to be happy. Mm. Uh, so he, he, the addition of worthiness to be happy takes out the, the smiley face subjective. Oh God, I'm so happy. You know, mm -hmm. worthy to be happy. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, Naturalizes that into D and we're talking Kant here. So we're talking about, you know, not light philosophy where, you know, it's, it's really, you know, it's a, it's a pressured uh, review of, of depth, and this also for me speaks uh, Aristotle's concept of eudaimonia, the ultimate end, um, good, uh, and our ultimate concern for flourishing, uh, as opposed to profound suffering. Uh, the metaphors of hell and heaven on earth, all of the wrapped up in uh, well-being. And as a clinician, of course, uh, psychosocial well-being is um, professionally trained in uh, really essentially what my job is. Um, is to encounter people whose psychosocial well-being is suffering. They're trapped in maladaptive cycles. They've had traumas occur to them. They don't know what to do. And the way they're adjusting to their environment, generally, if I can help them therapeutically, the way they're adjusting is creating more problems. And my job is to understand those maladaptive cycles that they're trapped in, create awareness and acceptance, and then cultivate active adaptive change that reverses patterns towards flourishing. That's the it's the goal, a lot easier said than done. Ultimately, the integrity piece, uh, you know, is which is really where I actually spent a hell of a lot of my time early on as a psychologist trying to figure out how the hell do you actually be a, a, a doctor of psychology with integrity? <laughs> mm. <laughs> okay. Um, because it turns out that the field of psychology, pardon my French, but I tell this in my lectures, nobody knows what the fuck psychology is. That's mm. what I discovered in my uh, uh, mm. in my training i woke up to that reality and, and so i was like well shit i'm supposed to be a psychologist but nobody knows what psychology is that's a problem <laughs> mm. anyway. Ooh, a bit like being a human being yeah well there, there. <laughs> right and they actually are connected uh yeah completely connected um but that sparked me on my intellectually scholarly journey as it were the question of what is psychology and what i call the problem of psychology yeah i i began reading I believe a chapter in um, your book, part of the link that you sent me. Um, it might have been an essay. You have to forgive me if I'm misquoting something. No, I, no, I've got yeah, I've dumped a lot. I only wrote one book, but I dumped a hell of a lot on psychology today. And but yes, the problem of one of the things I'm at an intellectual. If you want to know my intellectual story, it is the case that I at an sort of integrity truth level, it dawned on me that there's a profound problem in the science of psychology. 
And yeah. it's a really interesting problem uh, intellectually. I would love to hear about it, but I suppose I just I just ask you real quick because we could spend a, just a little bit more time in the territory that we've outlined here, and I, I would I would imagine there's actually a beautiful connection. Yes, yes, that's why I paused. I want to make sure we could come back to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, hmm. Mm, okay. So this is a bit of a link, but you know, very much a a link you have to stretch for. So you mentioned happiness with the worthiness to be happy. And I'm presuming that inferring that the assessment of one's worthiness is to be made with a kind of discernment that is in an important sense, from a more mature position than a certain kind of judgment. There is, of course, as I've seen you note in your work, there is this helpful friction point here uh, between how it is we come to judge or discern or, or hold ourselves to account, hold ourselves to account for, let's say, integrity, and then also the reality that, well, we do fall off the path, hey, when we do make mistakes. <laughs> of course. Um, and there's a certain kind of gentleness to that process, but nevertheless a, a hardness right and but not in a way that further traumatizes oneself but that does hold you to account and it it strikes me that there's a connection between this dynamic and the feature of the features of reality that we encounter in terms of how we meet the the unknown in terms of how we come to know ourselves in part due to being presented by things about ourselves we didn't know and that is a bit of a link to the problem, some problems with psychology. But of course, psychology is, you know, what it is, is an interesting thing. But if we say some sort of discipline or interest area in coming to understand the nature of what the human being, you can't even say Mm -hmm. as behavior, Mm -hmm. because it's like, we can talk Mm -hmm. about behavior, but then there's also the inner psychic life. And then there's this Mm -hmm. deeper sense of meaning and and what is it all about? And so it's a very difficult thing. It's, it's probably an interesting personal story there for you as to how you came to break from traditional understandings in psychology, at least. I mean, it seems to me that in the middle of the 20th century, you've got a pretty, like this sort of the functionalism, positivism, behaviorism that had been kind of dominant in both philosophy of mind, philosophy and, and psychology. Man, that stuff to me is just like, Whoa, guys! What like what? We're missing something that happens right at the beginning here, you know. Um, but I sort of go to university and study after a lot of that happens. You can maybe it's a bit easier to say when there are people that are kind of turning around, going, "Yeah, yeah, we kind of bit of a joke about that one." Sorry, <laughs> you know? sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. But how do you how do you relate then to? Can we can we say here? It's 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 almost like how do we relate to our own dissonance? You know, mm-hmm. how, how do mm-hmm. we trust ourselves mm-hmm. through our failures um, yes. mm-hmm. and maintain integrity? I don't know. Great. Yeah. So, well, first off, let's just say there's a reason that there's a problem of psychology. It's, it's freaking complicated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a lot of, it's the intersection of a lot of different, you know, lines of uh, analytic thought. Uh, it's an intersection of um, you have the deep subjective uh, experience problem relative to say if you're trying to do science from a third person objective perspective there's that nightmare you have deep issues of value 
problems in relationship to, you know, um, how do we predetermine what is good? We have an intuitive sense of what is good. We don't determine that scientifically. We determine that morally and ethically. You don't scientifically determine somebody is a priori healthy or good. We have a sense of what healthy and good is, and then we have variables that are associated with that. But that's a different. So, so how, you know, and so then how do we apply the values and the understanding to ourselves? And then wrestle with all the things, you know, like determinism and free will and what can we actually account for? And are we just doing pragmatic stuff or are we really, I mean, it's a nightmare, at, you know, at the one level. Um, I feel like I cut through a lot of that confusion and created coherence and consilience. And so that's, that was exciting. Because <laughs> you're handed with a puzzle and it turns out. There's not um, at the. I will simply say, just to reflect to some of your concern, there's a dialectic, you know, between when we're dealing with ourselves, and I say this as a therapist. Okay, there's a dialectic between challenge and support. Okay, dialectic between. So you want to be loved, and you want to be challenged by your coaches and your parents and the people who love you, right? And what you want to, and you want to do that to yourself. In other words, they're the part of you, they're the, the individuals who, who will move you and move yourself are the ones that accept you and love you both for who you are and challenge you to be what you can be. At the same time, hold that dialectic. That's what I try to do myself. And that's what I try with my kids. Um, and that's what I'm being related to in some of the best ways when other people are doing it. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. So, yeah. So, yeah. So that's a, that's in terms of the pragmatic, the practical reason, uh, that's a distilled practical reason dialectic that I would offer. And there's also then the theoretical reason that goes into the problem of psychology. And indeed what happened to me in graduate school as a therapist, I was learning to do therapy. You know, we can decide how long to go into this, but basically the short story was, is that I was learning that there was a lot of value in, in the various perspectives. Okay. So, uh, the updated neo-Freudian perspective, psychodynamic view, that, hey, that has a lot of interesting value. You know, I'll learn about the shadow and people justify. And yeah, Freud was extreme in some ways, but man, you know, he and then people like Karen Horney and modern Freudian theorists, you know, a lot of interesting stuff. And um, I was drawn to cognitive therapy and, and ideas from Beck and Ellis and Stoicism and how to justify your your position and interpretation in a way that is uh, is emotionally and behaviorally healthy. Um, the humanistic tradition, you know, I, I mean, all good therapy for me starts with Carl Rogers. Carl Rogers' capacity uh, for empathy um, and authenticity and holding that relational value. That's you know, Carl Rogers didn't call it that, but he called it the organismic valuing process that he would not judge but create a context, a relational mirroring context to grow. It's fucking that's just beautiful, man. Mm. Um, uh, and so you have, you know, and Skinner, I mean, Skinner was unbelievably insightful for a long time. I was arm wrestling most with Skinner mm. <laughs> and I finally understood what the hell he was talking about. Uh, cause this anti-mentalism pissed the shit out of me. And I was like, you know, you're, you're missing half the goddamn boat. And then I realized his brilliance of what he actually was seeing from a position I hadn't seen originally. And then I assimilated it. So anyway, the point is, is that you have, how would you articulate that? That's super interesting to me. If you don't mind, how would you, what, what, what sure. is, because Skinner's someone as well that I was just like, obviously loads of great research, super interesting stuff, but come on, man. Right. Wait. right. Okay. So, so basically Skinner, okay. So Skinner is taking a hard empiricism view 
uh, of science and, and, and the philosophy of behavior, which is basically going to take a third person exterior view. And my job as a psychologist is to determine the contingencies in response to your responses that change your response rate. Okay, that's what he's trying to do. And what he does is he gets rid of Watson's, uh, so Watson, the first behaviorist, has this idea that inside of you are all these neuromechanical reflexes that are somehow going off through association. That's Watson's view. That's just fucked up. Okay. Um, I hope your podcast don't remember. So <laughs> yeah, please go ahead. <laughs> um, so that's just, you know, that's just trying to create raw physical reductionism into the nervous system. That's just wrong. Skinner gets rid of that. He jettisons all of that. His philosophy, he creates a science and philosophy of behavior by which he defines it as the function of the operant. Okay. That's a very complicated concept once you, re once you really die. The operant is the thing that the organism is operating on and the contingencies that that operation produces. I'll say that again. It's the thing that the organism is operating on and the contingencies of that operation that it produces. Okay. So here's the example I give people. People think about Skinner in terms of, oh, you know, you get stickers or you do all this other stuff. Imagine you're writing along. Here, I have a pen right here. If I'm writing along down here, and this, and what is going on when I'm etch marking stuff on the page, okay? I'm writing and I'm seeing the ink on the page. So the ink is a function. My behavior is a function of that operant. And as soon as that pen runs out of ink and it stops writing, guess what happens? My writing behavior stops. Okay, mm -hmm. so you can see that actually the ink is a salient control external variable, okay, that is feeding back on my behavior, all right, and creating, that's creating a reinforcing control on what it is that I'm investing in. Yes, right? I understand. So it's a link, okay. a link of interdependency. It's a link of interdependency. And, and I, I, I'm not going to focus on what your feeling are, but all I'm going to do is I'm going to watch you on a video and I'm going to see the salient control variables that you try to produce and then the impact that that has on the frequencies of behavior that you emit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which then he doesn't, Skinner should have used this term, but he was so anti-mentalistic. So this is what I discovered. That's called the behavioral investment theory. Okay. Which basically says that your nervous system is an investment value system. Okay. An investment value system. All right, which actually connects, you were talking with John Verbeke about Heidegger's concept of care. Um, the, the investment value system is actually, the system cares about where you're gonna direct your work effort. I'll say that again, it cares about where you're gonna direct your work effort, okay? Your entire behavioral system is basically an energy economic system, all right, that is trying to expend energy based on things like time, opportunity costs, risks, and what you decide is relevant for the outcomes that you're working to produce, okay? So you have, from a cognitive perspective, you have a hierarchical system of relevance realizers, okay? God love John, right? That allows you to detect what are the appropriate and salient indicators of information that allow you to solve problems efficiently and spend work energy to get the control that you want. That's your cognitive view, okay? So that's neurocognitive functionalism, mm -hmm. all right? So that's what the neuro-cybernetic people, at least now the 4E cognitive people, are realizing that the nervous system is a neuro-cybernetic system, okay? That's embodied and enacting and, and fundamentally behavioral. It's this neurocognitive functional system.
Okay, so they're actually becoming behavioral in many ways. They were up here at the symbolic function level, like AI, and 4E brings you into the perspectival, procedural, embodied. Listen to the way John talks. It's not all proposition, it's, a, it's precipitatory. Well, actually, when you get into the way John's talking, you're actually now, as I told him, you're now jumping into a Skinnerian view from a third person. It's, it's, it's mentalistically cold, but it is third person observationally keen, and it attends to the environmental contingencies that are the salient control variables from a third person perspective. So it's watching what are the key variables that are enacting and soliciting and you're emitting participatory procedural action. If that makes yes. sense. It does make, it does make sense. I think that's a really awesome articulation. Thank you for connecting those dots to me. It's particularly um, that all of that architecture connects through Skinner in that way. Um, it does strike me that there, and, and here might take us on in your intellectual story a little bit perhaps although i'm not sure and that is because i i know there's there's more to come uh, I, I don't think you <laughs> okay. yeah it's a long story friend yeah <laughs> it might be in 10 hours but no we'll sign up for another one <laughs> well yeah we can we can have another and and so and so the thing is is that so i okay maybe maybe just to throw just to lob a few um balls at you then novelty as experienced subjectively and perhaps as a domain or potentiality as a domain metaphysically. And also the, uh, so a lot of what I've been writing about recently, um, not publishing anywhere, just really trying to make a, a more keener articulations after years of trying to understand this stuff. Um, okay. mm -hmm. Regarding the, regarding, uh, or I refer to as from one level modes of orientation. So, okay how we like the, the kind of um, the essential elements of orientation in experience itself, like as a conscious entity, it has a little bit to do with this. Uh, not quietly. The mapping is not quite one-to-one, -one, but this challenge support dynamic mm -hmm. is helpful okay. to explain a part of mm -hmm. a particular mode, yeah. but we encounter things we don't understand. We encounter others in relation and we're consistently undergoing this up and down the stack relevance realization processes to understand what kind of signals are relevant for the, uh, my own regulation of logistics as a biological entity with some kind of unconscious sense or maybe conscious sense of how I connect to others and survival needs and belonging mm -hmm. needs and how we're all interdependent. And then there's, um, well, what does attending to wisdom, building skillfulness in discernment in this process, what does that look like? To what degree is the being of us, right? The subjectivity mm -hmm. of, of us mm -hmm. involved, what degree can we have agency what is choice like how can we participate in our choosing use like the the fund get a sense of what the fundament of choice is sure. to help mm -hmm. discern how to inform perhaps even a small way but it's happening mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the metacognitive observer perhaps sure. is part of what you will come out with this with that's kind of where i'm interested in sort of going you know maybe not see this okay so lots of things there uh, lots of balls i can juggle uh, <laughs> yeah. First thing that I want to do is I want to I want to layer the behavioral investment system. Okay, I want to layer it, okay? and I want to layer it because if we don't layer it, we'll get confused about 
because they diff different layers operate in different ways. Okay, so let me give you, give you at least three layers. Okay, uh, so one layer is your you in relationship to the material environment as a perceiver. Okay, so you so now here you are. We're not talking about a relational layer. We're talking about you in the material environment as an animal entity uh, that's moving around okay, and has given, given rise, you've given rise to, at this stage in the game, let's say uh, you're, we're not talking about social relations, you're a mammal and you're just navigating the environment. Okay? Uh, you, have a, you have a perspectival view, which means that uh, consciousness, what I actually call mind two, I have three different minds uh, I use in terms of defining uh, domains of mental process. Mind one refers to the basic neurocognitive functionalist view that regulates procedural behavior. Okay, and that's where that's what. Uh, so this is before you have anything that would be an internal experience of being. Uh, you know, at the most basic level, you have snails uh, and jellyfish engaged in you know reflexive withdrawal mechanisms. These are basically uh, the neurocognitive reflexive loops that are at the foundation of neural network building. And they're, I would consider them, they're pretty phenomenological. I mean, no brain here. No, there's definitely nothing that would be an internal experience of being that we would relate to as our internal phenomenology. Okay, so no human phenomenology here. And, and not even animal phenomenology. You don't really, you know, you get an early brain, when phenomenology emerges. But we're gonna say that phenomenology is present so that we can answer your question, okay? Um, so we can relate to it. So what you, what do you have here is you have a perception mechanism, okay, that's trying to map and predict what is and what's going to be. That's essentially what you're, you have an investment value system that has to determine what is relevant, okay, and what it is doing is it's determining what it knows what it, relative to what it doesn't know. And by the way, your comment about novelty is really key here because it's, that's actually what's going to give rise um, to almost certainly consciousness. Uh, experiential consciousness is a layering of novelty about checking, wait a minute, if it's an automatic perceptional key that fits, you just file it away in your procedural memory and you don't pay any attention to it. It's when you're not sure and you need to pull particular working memory systems together to determine what it is that actually you're seeing it's that onboard memory perceptual system that's connecting to your episodic memory that allows you to actually have the phenomenological experience of being, okay, almost certainly. That's a, that's a global neuronal workspace is the technical term for that. Um, but anyway, you basically have a perceptual system that's tracking, and that's referencing against what your goal state is, okay? You have an intuitive drive goal state. You're trying to approach certain relations with the environment and avoid other relations, okay? Uh, so if you're horny, you're approaching sex, right? Uh, if you're afraid, you're approaching getting hurt um, at some particular level, all right? So if you're in a prey-predator relationship, if you're the prey, you're in an avoidance mode. If you're the predator, you're in approach mode, okay? Uh, so this prep you to move, see and then in relationship to your goal template and what you're trying to do with approach is you're trying to reduce that discrepancy, okay? And that's ultimately emotion is the desire you get when you energize toward your goal state. Okay, so when the cat sees the mouse, he's gaining on it. He's gaining uh, that experience of approach and desire and pounces. Okay, the mouse on the other hand is like trying to create a distance. <laughs> it's like, oh shit, <laughs> run, freeze, jerk. <laughs> you know, 
anything that expands the distance, okay? And if, as, the, as the cat closes from the mouse perspective, the mouse gets all afraid and, and it energizes it with an avoidance emotion, which is fear, fundamentally, an escape, okay, versus approach and desire. So, so you, what you have there, that's the perception, motivation, emotion formula uh, that's basic to navigating uh, the world as an animal. Uh, and, and the not what you're doing is you're, the perceptual system is tracking the objects and relationships that it sees. If it's looking for something or it gets novelty, it creates an intentional shift that then brings a layering of information to the relevance realization to try to frame that. And the reason it's intentional is because this motivational system, hypothetical motivational system is like, okay, we have these drives to approach and these drives to avoid. And that energizes you. Okay. So that's the, that's the first layer of the system. Now, if we jump up a layer, okay, now you jump up a layer and now you start talking about, we're not talking about your relationship with prey and water or in the material world. Now we're gonna actually talk about your conspecific relations. Okay? Meaning these are, the, these are the social relations. Now we're in a group like baboons, okay? That have long-standing social relations that have to navigate their cooperation and their competition with each other, okay? Um, and, and how to care for each other and how to deceive each other and how to navigate all of that. And that is where you wanna to try to kind of position yourself socially. So virtually all of what we experience in relationship to our intuitive sense of self-esteem, our self-worth, it's a socio-emotional process. I built a thing called the influence matrix, which actually maps the internal working models of self and relationship to other on things like dominance and submission, affiliation and hostility, autonomy and dependency. And actually all of those are in the service of us tracking our degree of social influence and relational value. It's called the black line on the influence matrix. And basically what it says is what you're trying to look for is relational value and social influence. Okay, that's, what you're, that's your approach. And what you're trying to avoid is diminishment of relational value or loss of social influence. That's the avoidance piece okay if we then start to think about well how do i how do i hold myself accountable and who am i and what do i want to be these are all internal working models intuitively that are going to guide you okay um and then the final layer is now we get into a human layer okay uh, what i call ultimately mind three which is self-conscious narration and justification okay mind three is when the system can actually become you know, the I now, it's not just me, it's I in relationship to me. And I have, I have a self-reflective capacity to look back on myself and start making judgments. And very importantly, I have the whole process by which I justify myself to other people. Okay, so now other people hold me accountable. In fact, that's what you learn first as a young kid, your parents and your friends and everybody holds you accountable and says, well, why did you do this? And why didn't you do this? And you'll be punished if you do this. So you say, well, I did this because, and I did this because, and I'm a justifier, okay? As a social actor on a stage that says, oh, you know, I'm trying to do my best. And, and you learn to justify yourself. And then you learn, and really adolescence is the developmental period in humans where you really actually formalize this capacity to become a consistent self-reflective observer because that's what you call the adolescent identity. It's like, oh shit, I am this way, but I could be something different. And then you wander around with that ability of that self-concept that just walks with you. And many adolescents go neurotic as hell because it's like, 
their self-concepts is like, oh God, I wish you were so different. And why aren't you like Becky? She's all hot and popular and you're ugly and neurotic and I hate you and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they get that the nasty internalized critic and it's really, really brutal on many people. But anyway, the point of it is, is then you get that secondary reflective view in mind three where you're justifying uh, entity. So if we're going to stack relevance realization mechanisms, we have to be very clear about where we are in the mental domains and processes because they behave differently uh, across different layers and then they interrelate differently. Mm. Well, thank you for that articulation. That's, um, that's very, very helpful. So what comes up for me and just to put like some cards on the table. So to the extent I have a background that's well identifiable from an institutional perspective, I was quite interested in philosophy of mind and six years ago now, when I was doing more of a, a scholarly study of different theories and what have you, um, I, at the time was, was gravitating strongly towards a variant of, um, a sort of panpsychism, but also with, mm. but, but really more process philosophy. So rather than looking to try and make sense of this difficult dichotomy or between realism, idealism, and then of course, dualism, making, making a third in that case with existing kind of metaphysical structure, sort of looking at going at it a whole different way and not looking at it from a substance perspective, rather a process perspective. And, and so there are parts of me that are built up that I bring to this kind of conversation that are, that, that, that do trigger and wish to understand a little more deeply the territory that would have us be able to make sort of um, assumptions or statements um, regarding where consciousness pops up. But I yes. don't just want to do that as a sort of a sidetrack because mm-hmm. in some sense, consciousness is a, it's, it is an objective phenomenon as well as it's a subjective phenomenon, of course. It's a very tricky phenomenon. Absolutely open to wherever you are and let's just dialogue absolutely yeah um but I, I think there's a really you know a really fruitful way we could go in here and that's to sort of ask you to, for an understanding of how let's take mind three which just mm-hmm. less for people who might not be as familiar just the kind of the, the stuff that's happening in in consciousness right of human language-based self-consciousness okay so it's actually it's Rene Descartes, like, I think, therefore I am, but it's language-based. And very importantly, it's everything I could report to you um, that you have direct access to. In other words, it is my narrator. Okay, right. So, uh, so it's, it sounds the same in my head when I say it out loud, which is very different than my perspectival consciousness. Uh, so I just right. want to... The medium makes a big difference. So the fact that it's linguistically mediated as opposed to perspectively mediated, that's actually, that carries lots of difference uh, not that they're inside my head, they're interrelated, of course. Um, but language only comes out. My perspective never comes out. That's encapsulated in my, I mean, directly, it comes out indirectly, but my my subjectivity is encapsulated in my perspective that you can never, you'll never have direct access to mine mm-hmm. and I'll have direct access to you. But you do get direct access to my mind three as long as I don't filter it. So if I, if I just tell you what my narrator's saying, um, that's unfiltered, and that's as you have as direct access to my linguistic thoughts as I do, uh, if I share them. Sure. Yes. Thank you. Sorry for the. Um, for no, the it's a, it's a, listen. It's a new language system, but it's so I, I'm. I have no apologies. I just want to be clear about what it is. That's all. Certainly, you wouldn't yeah, expect. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yes. Um, that did lock in with my sense of it. I was just loose, but, um, yeah. So, so that actually gets right to it then. So how, uh, cause there is this phenomenon of we, and there is also an aspect to this discussion that as well, we haven't yet presence that would be worth kind of just, um, presencing now, not necessarily just, just to, just to throw this into the mix as well. And that's, Brilliant. that's spirituality. And that's, um, yes some of the more mystical experiences available to us and these deeper Amen. sense of connect connectivity and and meaning associated and so it's 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 something it's this participation in a shared we right and though i can't access you directly through a kind of relational indirect process we can participate Completely. in something together love i love john's participatory and that's exactly what it is and and in many ways i would argue my behavior is essentially the opposite side of mine of my coin so we're and they're very yoked in many ways together so yes absolutely you i often say to people my wife in many ways knows me better than me not that she knows my phenomenology better but she knows who i am by virtue of her observation of me so we can really know each other very well i want to be clear about that and we can we can know each other intersubjectively through our participatory dance with each other the flow that we create is a way of i I love John's uh, transjective participatory knowing and and mm. I embrace that. So yes, I'm mm. I'm with you. Yes, yes. So it would seem to me then, I don't know if I'm going to get this quite right, but um because I know you're also interested in talking about psychotechnologies and what psychotechnologies might be helpful for today. So it's like what kind of practice what kind of thing can we do or what is there to be discovered and and built skillfulness in that helps us move from it's it's like how do we it's it's continuity between these three minds in your language hey it's because it can for me it seems uh, well, it, it, it triggers against some of the axioms that I kind of bring to bear. Okay. If we consider things too separately, and I don't think you are considering them separately. So I'm, I'm interested. I'm a unity non-dualist. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested in, I'm just trying to figure out the words to ask you how to articulate the interconnections, the continuity and how we can transform up and down the stack. Brilliant. Yep. Okay. So yes, I'm a, uh, I'm a substance monist, if you want to call it that, or a non-dualist uh, in that sense, although the world is, it's complicated because there's epistemological and ontological meanings of all of that that I have to sort out. Um, one of the big uh, concepts that I introduced that I think is not nearly appreciated enough is called informational interface. Okay. Informational interface is the translation between information processing systems and the interface between them, okay? If you appreciate, like my system emphasizes, uh, Marshall McLuhan would appreciate this, um, that the medium of information transfer is key. Mm -hmm. In other words, language is different than phenomenology. So Mm -hmm. that's key, okay? Um, And once you then sort out the information processing language communication control systems that speaking the particular language, you also then realize, oh wait, there's of course information interface between information processing language systems, okay? Uh, So this is super apparent right now. Uh, I mean, 
I am speaking, there's sound waves that are going into this thing, they're being translated, they're being shot up, they're being through the internet and, and translated back into the sound waves that your speakers are producing. That's an interface uh, where the medium is being translated and then transmitted and then translated again through different uh, information processing systems. Okay? If we look at our biology, our nervous system, uh, the basic thing that all at the input level of the nervous system is transduction input sensory mechanisms. In other words, what those things have are whether it's press on your, on your push here or electromagnetic radiation through your eye or sound waves, those are all the miracles of the nervous system is that it translates through transduction changes in the world, physical, chemical, um, press changes, uh, informational, and shoots language, <laughs> neuro language, into the system. It's a, it's a miracle. Um, and then at an embodied level, that creates procedural behavior, okay? Non-conscious, at least in the way I'm using the term, non-conscious procedural behavior, which we see throughout the entire organism, you know, uh, that starts with cells, actually. Cells are self-organizing, subjective, they don't have phenomenology in my language, but they have self-organizing awareness and they make decisions about what they're doing, okay? Um, and, and so they have that capacity and then you network all of that together to create physiology, then you have a nervous system that unifies that and you get simple animal behavior uh, and then you get brains that coordinate that and then you get brains that create subjective consciousness or mind too in my language. But all of that is networked and it's networked through information uh, informa information interface across different language systems. And it is that information interface that allows us to uh, metaphysically account for a lot of the causal confusions that I think people get into, in terms of like, well, how does mind three cause anything to happen? Isn't it all just physics? It's like, mm. no, it's not all physics, at least in it. I mean, it's all physical at one broad, almost meaningless sense of the word, but it's, it's justificatory informational. I mean, this entire conversation, my mind is hooked up with yours. My mind three has created a highway of information. And, and we have downloaded each other's informational systems and are, and are phenomenologically moved and physiologically moved as a function of that. Mm -hmm. that, to, that to me is, is blatantly obvious. How, why the hell are we having the conversation? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's all, that's all. That all makes a lot of sense to me. So, so if we take if we take mind one, then this um, this perceiver of world, this this uh, responsible for this base participatory relevance realization in in John's language, is that an appropriate mapping? Just to use it, yes. Although I want to be clear, so really, mind one, uh, the best way to understand mind one is what cognitive neuroethologists do. An ethologist is a science of animal behavior. Okay, that's ethology, or uh, used to be called comparative psychology, and then psychology gave animal behavior over to biology, which in my system was a trauma, uh, a tragedy. Okay, so uh, animal behavior should be basic psychology, but now it's biology. But anyway, um, so, so the question is, how do you understand what animals do from a scientific perspective? Okay, that's the first question. Uh, and mind one, really is the answer to that question. So, so at a simple level, they have a nervous system, okay? So all complex animal behavior is mediated through the nervous system in general and brain in particular. We mm. know that scientifically, okay? Mm. 
ask, well, what is the nervous system? Well, it's this messaging information processing system that functions, neuroscience people call it the organ of behavior, which basically, basically means it takes the behavior of the animal as a whole and moves it around. So that's your neuroscience contribution. Then you have your computational, cybernetic, cognitive folks, okay, who, who study the nervous system as literally an information processing, computational, and cybernetic hierarchically control system. Okay, so that's that's yeah. what uh, cognitive neuroscience or computational neuroscience people do. Then what you have is you have the behaviorists who take animals and put them in the lab and create artificial contingencies, either through association or uh, social networking or, or reinforcement, and then they see how their behavior changes, and they have their language of behavioral science, which tells you how the language changes based on association and contingency, usually. Um, mm -hmm. and of course, and more advanced now, but that's the early language, and it still builds off of all that shit. Okay, and then you have ethologists, um, most famously, like if you know uh, uh, somebody like E.O. Wilson, who was a sociobiologist, but he was really an ethologist uh, in the sense he studied ants and social behavior in animals. Um, the early folks were comparative psychologists, but anyway, you, why do animals do what they do in the world? How do you understand this? I just saw an interesting study on bees. Bees have cross mental modalities where they can recognize an, an, uh, um, an object through smell and through touch simultaneously. You know, they recognize the same object through sight, sight or smell, I think it was. Maybe it was touch and sight. Anyway, it doesn't matter. They had cross modality recognition of an item, a bee, a bumblebee. Like, mm. That's fucking interesting, right? Mm. <laughs> it's like the bee knows what it is, whether it smells it or whether it touches it, it knows mm. that it's object they could that's how they you know that was the experiment it's called cognitive ethology um which is the how you know bringing cognitive models to demonstrate what animals are perceiving um, so so once you see that what, what the unified theory says is actually all of that the meta theoretical frame is behavioral investment theory okay behavioral investment theory allows us as scientists to understand animal neuromental behavior or patterns. That's a, so it, it creates a theory that emerges out of biology, is organizes neuroscience, and then organizes neuroscience as this cybernetic behavioral system. Okay, And then that's called behavioral investment theory, and that's mind one. And mind one makes no assertion a priori about the existence of mind two, meaning that it doesn't tell you when animals get phenomenological conscious awareness, okay? And the reason is because mind two is where we get into so many different philosophical conundrums, all right? I, of, I often say there are at least two separate hard problems of consciousness defined in terms of what my, my meaning of mind two, okay? So one of them is the epistemological gap problem the epistemological gap problem is you never get to see another entity's mind too directly. That's the nature of it. Epistemologically, I can never see another entity's witnessing capacity. I mean, that was Thomas Nagel. What is it like to be a bat? You know, he reviews, we assume bats have some perspectival experience witnessing function, but what the hell is it like? <laughs> and how would you know? And you, you know, that's the epistemological gap. Okay. And then the other serious problem scientifically is the ontological problem, which is what exactly are the brain mechanisms involved in generating 
the felt, experienced, witnessing function. That's unbelievably, that's a, that's a brutally hard problem as far as I'm concerned. That's a, it's the ontological problem of mind too. And we, we, we box in a lot of correlational stuff of what the brain does, but it's still, there's huge amounts of debate and rightfully so. The combination of the ontological and epistemological problems of mind, of mind two are, are really, you know, I, I can box, I believe I box it in with the unified framework, but I don't answer it. That, that, those things remain um, big time scientific mysteries as far as I'm concerned, even as we're honing in on them, I believe. Mm. I think mm. they're, I, I consider them scientific mysteries. Um, so I'll mm. stop, I said a lot there, but I'll, I'll Yeah, no, beautiful. So, oh, let me see. So, you know, in the remaining time we have together, which I'm, I'm taking to be maybe uh, 30 minutes, if I can keep you interested enough. Yeah. Oh, um, uh, 30 minutes sounds perfect. Yes, I was considering, okay. saw that you went two hours with John. I said, I'll go two hours if it works. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's very interesting, just as, a, just as an aside point for people listening. In my experience of group conversation and dialogues in general, the one to two hour mark is, is when certain things really begin to pick up. Uh, a lot of this is just a product of time, hey? Like if we really did sit down for 10 hours together and go, all right, that's all, where would we go? Is an interesting question. It's it an interesting, interesting question. Okay. We'd have um, to go for food at some point. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, we could continue to talk. So, okay. Um, to, to look out then again to the world and the moment we find ourselves in now, one that threatens fractionation to a point of uh, destabilization, which may engender certain kinds of collapse dynamics. That seems to be a reasonable thing to say about a potential. And there's other potentials. I agree. I agree. And to stick with some of the themes of this conversation, we've spoken about the importance of mindset, the kind of values enabling of mm -hmm. relational dynamics that are enabling of uh, growth, or at least we haven't obviously done it exhaustively. What we see around us in the world from a broad ecology perspective as well is um, mass extinction events. We see change all around us as is always the case, of course, it's change. And of course, the cycle of living and dying is always the case too. But there seems to be, again, from a certain perspective, a sense that somehow, uh, and we can actually speak to it quite, we can speak to it quite um, directly from certain game theoretic perspectives. I, this is not that vague, actually, how some of the perspectives we can take to characterize our out of touchness with vital yes. relationality on a broad ecological sphere. And we might yes. say it would be a good thing to come back into closer touch with what it is to live sustainably in a growthful way, one that did not render us so fragile to the collapse of not only all that we care about, but all that we can apprehend or much of what we can apprehend in nature as beautiful. Um, so, well said. Um, and we also have in this conversation as well gotten into some of the challenges of speaking about. Well, you mentioned this epistemological gap of how can we know other minds in a certain sense, and an ontological gap in terms of understanding what the 
the like getting a, a tight mapping of what the relationship is between whether brain circuitry or what is the substrate or how does phenomenological experience really really map on to something we could look at from say more of an objective kind of perspective like we we can relate to it in uh, that way um but it's like so these are these are big things to to open into i appreciate that and i have some other pieces have some other pieces to add because and i'm also willing to certainly for the sake of the conversation to give up a semantic attachment to phenomenology needing to be present in the base of things but you did mention that there's some kind of awareness or discrimination listen we're we're all in the process of sense making uh you know i i have where my model led me um and uh and i and i will say that yes that to the extent that what i mean is consciousness do i think it exists in a hydrogen atom uh you know not exactly uh, but whatever in relationship to there is an interior perspective. I mean, Leibniz talked about the monad and they're all just mystery, uh, you know, and, and Whitehead's brilliant. I love process philosophy. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm a pluralist, uh, you know, yeah. certainly, hey, man, now no, I, you're making sense out of it. You know? I know, I, 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 I get you. I think the, I, I, I do think the language is often, I mean, it's so important and it can also be such an unhelpful barrier to to really doing the, the I, right, I offer my language, and I but it is a language game. I love Wittgenstein's language game, you know, mm-hmm. it, uh, and sort of like, okay, here's the language game I'm playing. Let's see if you could speak it. Um, but mm-hmm. I ain't gonna be authoritarian about it, you mm-hmm. know. So being gentle with this language, then I'm, I'm, in some respects, the the hard problem of consciousness, or at least the ontological problem, it gets close to where if I can try and bring the epistemological problem and the ontological problem together, and perhaps also with a certain kind of ethics, I want to actually take ethics with that as well, or at least a certain kind of meta ethics. And I think that's what the process philosophy perspective ultimately is to be held account mm-hmm. for. Right. So, and, and you mentioned something to do with this um, in the mind one system of the approach, the predator prey behavior, the approach and the, the running away. Right. And in my language, I say confrontation and surrender. It can be other, other, terms kind of used. There's two different kinds of confrontation, confrontation, two different kinds of surrender looking to, and I don't have things articulated to a point yet where I'm ready to just go, okay, here is the kind of the model or the system, but this dynamic of, of being in a kind of right relationship to what is appropriate confrontation or appropriate approach. Mm. And when should you accept ingression or when should you reject ingression? Or should you hold boundaries? And because I want to link this up with how it is to come into relationality with each other and also the issues with our world, hey? And right. it's also this nation, this notion of, of truth and integrity that you mentioned. Like those values you mentioned, Greg, truly are beautiful, hey? Like this is, this is, this is so wonderful, dignity, well-being, and integrity as you articulated. And it's like, how would those kind of values serve us as a mapping at this fundamental mind one kind of level because if you take the dignity it's kind of an it's kind of an acknowledgement that there is there is a dynamic that i'm in relationship to that i have to take seriously mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Now, the well-being of course okay there's something phenomenological about that from our perspective mm-hmm. but in a mm-hmm. sense from mm-hmm. you know a base level it's kind of like well maybe it is i just wish to kind of 
survive or this is appropriate <laughs> for the continuation yeah, of yeah. me or what have you. But we have to take right. that so seriously because, of course, if Absolutely. we are out of touch, if we are out of touch and we're thinking, well, how yeah. is it we came to be so out of touch? But it turns out that something like that kind of rivalry towards that in that victory yeah. sense is that fundamental. Yes. It's like, how do we get to that? So the continuity <sighs> between these levels. So I want to try and preserve some of this language. And I think the agentic, like the choice, I'm not talking about in some phenomenological, beautiful lights, yeah. archetypal patterns. I'm walking yeah. into a forest. I'm talking like how to develop skillfulness in attention such that with, with, with subtlety and gentleness, but nevertheless, like a kind of grounded yes to discern one way or another and have that mean something. Hey, I mean, that's, First off, let's just honor that. That was, to me at least, that, that resonates and was brilliantly articulated in terms of the dilemmas and the challenges and, and you know, the, the problems. And often, uh, you know, you want to know the right way to frame a problem is really key. And I just think you um, passionately offered a, a really interesting way to frame the problem. So I just want to sit with that for a second. Thank you. Because that's like, yeah, shit, how do we actually fucking do this? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you know there's, there's sort of like, there's this meta, you know, for me, it's sort of like I have this meta schematic, right, that actually saw, in my opinion, solves some serious longstanding fucking problems, okay? And then that's very different than actually, well, what do you actually do, you know, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then how, and how do you do it? Uh, and, 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 you know, I, I really have deep appreciation for people like Daniel Schmachtenberger and Jordan Hall and John Verbeke. Um, here's the way I, I I'll sp- let me speak for just a second about what I see where we are, okay? Um, because I actually see us, I actually think this is a really important time in, this sounds magical and this is where it gets in my spiritual, I actually think of us as an important time in the cosmos, okay? Uh, from at least a human, our human anthropomorphic uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. And here's the way the tree of knowledge grounds me analytically in that and then causes me to be spiritual about that, okay? Which we'll get back to, I don't have an answer for what you said, other than to say that's the participatory journey of life and that we all need to sort of figure out how to dance around so that we know when to confront and leverage and wake people up and say, what the fuck are we doing within a degree of assertion and clarity and quasi-aggression that asserts power and leverages change, right? And at the same time, does it turn into some authoritarian nightmare or end up getting us crushed by whatever reaction we elicit, okay? So this, this dynamic of like, okay, well, fuck. And at the same time, I don't know. This is what I was going to say. So cup two key points that I want to make and then come back to why I just would embrace your participatory not knowing. So at the, at the Jordan Hall, John Verbeke, whatever, uh, or Zach Stein, he says it nicely. We're at a time between worlds. Okay. And the future, uh, to borrow from, uh, Stuart Kaufman, he wrote a recent book on, on life and the evolution of complex adaptive systems. It's unprestatable, unprestatable. We don't, no, we don't know what, 2050, 2000, uh, to, you know, 2100, I mean, you know, all bets are off. And what do we need to look like to have a sustainable world with how many billion people? I mean, are we talking, do 5 billion of us need to die? Are we going to get up to 15 billion? 
Um, how do we, what can the planet sustain? Anybody that tells you, you know, that they know what that is, it's ridiculous, because we don't know what the technology is, we don't know what the lifestyles are gonna be. So, so the edge, of, we are on the edge of uncertainty and the nature of what the future is is unprestatable. Well, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, now what are you going to do? <laughs> How do you know what the right move is if those are the parameters? Okay? You don't. All right? So that's, that's the, the seers, the futuristic seers that are getting this right as far as I'm concerned is like you sit with the liminal. That, the liminal is the mystery of where we are. And, the, and you better recognize that we're on the edge of something that we don't know what the future is. So our task is to link together the best sense and meaning-making systems so that we can at least see where we are and where we've been and at least have the parameters for where we want to go, even as we know we have no idea how to get there because of the unknown uh, future. Land is the landscape before us. We're, you know, we're a collective hero's journey, basically. We're all in the process of building, ideally building something that we don't know what it is at all. Yeah, because it has to be. And actually, the tree of knowledge teaches us that. Okay, so the tree of knowledge, we haven't talked explicitly about that. You, I'm sure you've come. That's not, that's the, uh, that's the tree theory of knowledge. And the first branch on the thing behind me is the tree of knowledge system. Okay, that's my crazy language system, which I apologize for, but there it is. The first branch on there is the tree of knowledge system. The tree of knowledge system says that the universe of is an unfolding wave of behavioral complexity. That's a universal unfolding wave of behavioral complexity. Uh, and first you get the wave of matter, which is just the material dimension of complicated behavioral systems. Okay? Which starts simple and then it grows into increasingly complicated. Uh, complicated. And then on planet Earth, and God only knows where else in the universe, um, a series of feedback loops happen, which I won't get into, that spark life which then gives rise to this new kind of behavioral pattern, okay? Uh, that has its own information processing, computational control, regulatory, dynamic, autopoetic system of processing. So cells behave very differently than molecules, okay? Um, and the reason is, in part, is because of the DNA, RNA, information processing, communication system that happens within the cell and then between cells that create the network of cellular activity that we call life. Okay. Well, you follow that for a billion or a couple of <laughs> two billion years, uh, and certainly then you get to 550 million years ago and what's called the Cambrian explosion. Okay, and a lot of things happen in between, but uh, with the Cambrian explosion, you get the emergence of complex animal bodies with brains, and a little bit before then, but that's really when it explodes and takes off. And what you get there is a neurocomputational system that's yoking cells together so that animals behave as whole units. It's a new information processing system and a new computational control and communication system. Okay? And that's what the tree of knowledge calls mind, which is a word like life. It's just what you see animals doing uh, in the language system. It's like, oh, my dog just walked by. There's mine. I have fish over there in a tank. The behavior of the fish is mental behavior. Right? Um, just like you would see a plant and call it alive, living behavior. Okay? And then finally, 100,000 years ago, plus or minus, and certainly by 50,000 years ago, you have what we're doing right now, that's language that is yoking subjective minds together 
on a highway of information, building systems of justification, okay, that coordinate people, first at the hunter-gatherer level, and then at the horticultural level, and then at the agricultural level, and then at the civilization level, and then they build, then there's writing, and they build all these formal systems, and ultimately you get philosophy and science, mathematics, okay? You get the systems of justification. All right, so if you use the tree of knowledge and you say, all right, seriously, what has given rise to each of these qualitative jumps following matter? Life, mind, culture. Well, life, DNA, RNA, information processing, coordinated system together, networked. Mind, a neuroinformation system. Language, symbolic uh, communication, and language justification. So then the question is, well, what you get is, what you, if there's a novel information processing system that gets yoked together and then communicates amongst itself, then you would get another jump. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So once you see that it's an information processing system that's yoked together in an internet, interconnected network, okay, that creates information interface and artificial symbiotic human intelligence systems? Well, shit. That's exactly what happened in the 20th century. They laid the groundwork for all of that. And all of that's going to get yoked together in the 21st century. And that's the digital landscape. So the digital landscape, okay, what this conversation is taking place, which collapses across space and time and allows our justification systems to be yoked together in a radically different way that, of course, 20,000 years ago is just even just pure magic, right? Mm -hmm. If we have this kind of inter-network connection and we have artificial intelligence, big data communication, and then we internet, the internet of things connects all of our machines together, then we start putting shit in our heads, <laughs> okay. right? You know, that welcome, welcome, exactly. Welcome to Yaval Harari, you know, homo duos, deuce, whatever you, whatever you pronounce it, but it's like, oh, hello, right? We are actually sitting, the kairos of this moment not only is like, what's the global institutional infrastructure, but it's also this global technological boom that creates an information processing communication network system that is radically different than anything we did before. It makes the, it makes the printing press, you know, look minuscule relative to what we're setting ourselves up for. Mm. Okay. So this is what's called the, on the tree of knowledge, each one of these jumps is a joint point. So you go from energy, pure energy of the Big Bang to matter, that's joint point one. Matter to life, that's joint point two. Life to mind, that's joint point three. Mind to culture is joint point four. This is joint point five that the 21st century is about. And it's unbelievable. Every one of these joint points is really key and they're complicated and they're vulnerable because you're on the edge of chaos. Uh, and the dynamics then between order and chaos are going to get all wacky. And I really think that we are actually at that point. And there's a miracle of a thing called the singularity. I don't know if you've been, you know, tracking this at all, but there's a thing, you know, uh, uh, called the singularity. Ray Kurzweil popularized it. Um, but there's actually a tracking of the evolution of complexity. Uh, and I can explain what I think this means. But ultimately it crosses. There's a mathematician a Russian mathematician that nailed this down from 2027 to 2029 who crossed the threshold of the singularity. Okay. Fascinating. Unbelievable, actually. Magical, as far as I'm Mystical. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Roy Bashkar. In his later years, he developed what's called meta-reality. Um, he was a grounded 
uh, philosopher and then actually popped into this real spiritual view of the universe, which, which is why I have res deep respect for panpsychic views. And I don't know what the hell, who the hell knows is, I mean, maybe the, maybe God is calling us to wake up, you know, I mean, you know, I'm agnostic about that, mm. um, but I have seen shit and I have, my theory connects me to shit that I can't even possibly fathom. So I, that, that, that awakens me to a spiritual uh, notion um, that I'm agnostic about, but that it's a calling. It's an ultimate concern. Uh, it's, it's a way in which I place the purpose of my life. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's my frame. And then you come back to, well, what do you do with that? <laughs> you know, and then mm -hmm. I go, well, Tim, mm -hmm. you just articulated the dilemmas about what they actually do brilliantly. I don't know. And I got my, it's my architecture. What do we actually do? Well, each of us are on a journey there. So look, yeah. Well, thank you for that. That was a beautiful articulation. I mean, um, I have some ideas about what to do, mm -hmm. you know, um, and um, it uh, seems to be develop, cultivate um, skillfulness, worthiness, maybe to extend invitations to engage in a certain kind of movement of understanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, there seem to be, uh, it does seem like there are important questions that must be transformed and um, that a certain sort of participation in with each other in the transformation of those questions is an appropriate grounding or aspiration in that aim. Um, now that of course itself is, is not giving a definitive answer, but it's opening to a kind of process, perhaps better enabling of coming to terms and um, maybe coming to a certain sort of acceptance with um, who we are and the nature of who we are. Mm -hmm. um, and there are some other things, there are some other things to say too. I mean, the, I've noticed that in the um, at the closure of um, many good conversations comes an opportunity to extend an invitation for another conversation, <laughs> um, which is something I would love to do. Um, and if not with you, you and I, with um, some other people as well, so see how to do this kind of thing with with multiple people, as is happening in a few different places right now. But if you're interested, I would love to talk to you again in that kind of way. Please. I was just having, I'll share, I, I lead a society called Theory of Knowledge uh, Society. Mm -hmm. um, and on, uh, on Monday, uh, we, you know, we were just, we just, yesterday, <laughs> days all blend together. Uh, you know, we had a, a group of almost 20 of us uh, for almost two hours. The th topic was mindfulness. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what that was and what it wasn't. Uh, the unified framework offers an integrative approach uh, to psychological mindfulness that's capsuled in uh, the acronym COM-MO. Um, and uh, it provides, I talked to John Verbeke a little bit about that, provides my sort of opening frame for uh, the psychotechnologies that would uh, enable processes that would be conducive to the dialogos uh, element 
um, and those kinds of elements. So I love um, it, by the way. Um, I have mm-hmm. I have read into it a little bit. I appreciated it mm-hmm. in that conversation. Um, uh, if you if you if you wouldn't mind giving like, and it's a bit ridiculous to give like a one minute or two minute sort of. No, it's actually it's designed. Actually, it is designed to be very quick. Okay, so first off, I'll say it's approach to psychological mindfulness. That's a little different than meditative mindfulness. But at the word mindfulness, that means you want to cultivate awareness and acceptance. Virtually the thing that mindfulness always, uh, as opposed to rejection and blind mindlessness. That's so mindfulness means you're going to cultivate awareness and a position of acceptance psychological mindfulness that it means that I'm going to come at it from a more analytic perspective rather than meditative mindfulness, which would be a more witnessing mind to subjective phenomenological. Uh, when you meditate, you train yourself to attend to your witnessing function. Uh, the common MO is train yourself really how to adopt a um, more like an internal therapist view. Okay. So that, and that's not surprising given my training. All right. Uh, mm-hmm. So we'll, Really quickly, MO stands for a metacognitive observer, okay? so, which basically means you step outside the stream of your action and take an observer view from a meta perspective. Okay? It also doubles as the term MO, which is uh, modus operandi. And when I say that, I say that what I'm going to teach you is uh, simple at one level, but very hard to do. Okay. And the, and the analogy I often use is like, well, if I told you that basketball is about taking a ball and putting in a hoop, that might sound kind of easy. <laughs> but I could talk to you for three minutes about basketball and you have no idea how to play it. Okay? Mm-hmm. I say that in terms of, you know, I can give you a frame, but actually this takes practice. Um, and it's a really, it's a psychological skill set. So metacognitive observer and a modus operandi that you cultivate. Okay. And that's a, that's a perspective uh, that on yourself and on others, that, that is a participant observer. And then calm. So the first thing that you do is you say the word and you invite your body to be calm. Okay? And then you're going to invite your mind and ultimately your spirit, which is your ultimate concern to be calm. Uh, and we can call that from John Verbeke, we can call that a vertical move, in the sense that I want to get into my body, into my affect, into my higher cognition, ultimately my spiritual concern. And calm, of course, is, you know, position then against the anxious, defensive, threatened uh, view. And if you know things about like polyvagal nerve theory, you'll know that basically what I'm trying to do is try to get that open system uh, of participation. Okay. So calm body, calm mind, calm spirits. First thing that you do. Then the second thing is that calm stands for an acronym. Okay. It's an acronym. It's not just the word. It's an acronym that cultivates the attitude that we're trying to uh, enact uh, and engender both intrapsychically and interpersonally. And what the C stands for curiosity. So now I want to create a mindset of curiosity and openness as opposed to closeness and criticality. And I should say, by the way, uh, the originator of an element of this was Dan Siegel. He's an interpersonal neurobiologist, so I really like him. And uh, he had coal, and I'm, I'm bringing it in, uh, but I, I like to make sure he gets credit. Anyway, um, so curiosity. The second word is A is for acceptance. And this is what the Buddha taught us in terms of really the capacity to be and be present, okay? uh, to detach uh, from your emotions in terms of, I need to feel this way. No, you are feeling this way, and you have the capacity for radical acceptance of being. 
acceptance of self, acceptance of past, acceptance of the way the world is, acceptance of the other. Not in a, oh, you do whatever you want sort of way, but just a capacity to not resist, okay? Suffering in Buddhism is a combination of pain and then resistance. Acceptance is the inverse of resistance. Uh, psychologically, we often talk about it as distress tolerance and sort of a skill sort of way. So acceptance. Acceptance of feelings, acceptance of past, acceptance of self, acceptance of other. The L stands for loving compassion. Loving compassion is the fundamental attitude. It gets back to dignity, where every individual has dignity. I want to cultivate that in myself. Compassion cultivates the idea that I hope for well-being for you and your loved ones. I hope for well-being for myself. Okay? I, I wish I don't want to bestow suffering upon anybody. It's a fundamental compassionate attitude. And finally, motivated refers to motivated um, toward valued states of being in the short and long term. So I need to know what my valued states of being are. Uh, that's what I aspire to. Notice this will create a dialectic between being and becoming, okay, which orients my value state. And it orients it in relationship to what do I want out of the here and now in the short term? And then what am I positioned a week, three months, three years, through the end of my life and my eulogy values? That's a, you know, what do we people want? So how do I organize my long-term values? So I want to position myself. That's what my coach is, my internal guide. This is what's providing me both the support and the encouragement and the challenge to be. And that's what the calm MO mindset is about. Okay. And, and the argument fundamentally is we create a culture that individuals extend calm MO to ourselves and others. And you do the same to me. That creates a very, very different uh, ecology. You want to talk about ecology of practices? It's an ecology... It's a relational and intrapsychic ecology uh, that enables you really what is you know, fundamentally core is how do you deal with conflict? How do you deal with you know, intense disagreement? How do you deal with your own neurotic tendencies? Well, CalmMO actually serves as a bomb, you know, calm bomb in relation. Uh, so the maladaptive processes that are so often engendered get actually uh, are brought to bear and then they're reversed. And this is what my training as a psychotherapist really taught me. It's like it, it encapsulates all the processes and principles uh, that re identify and reverse maladaptive cycles intrapsychically and interpersonally. And then it creates the kind of uh, fertile context so that we can grow adaptive relational and intrapsychic modes. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. I think it's... Um... Well, a very smart and elegant inclusion of so many important things that I am, um, yeah, I'm, I'm in no doubt of their, of their help. Yeah, if we can, if we can enter into this, this position. Yeah, I'll give um, you a quick example. So in the conversation, I know we're just about ready to time, but my friend who's a sociologist, I taught him this calm MO and he, as a good gesture, he's a professor, but as a good gesture on weekends, trying to help people. Um, he has a truck and he started renting it out to people in need to help them move. Okay. So he was telling our group that he had learned CommMO over the last year and a half from me because he's a friend of mine and he really internalized it. But he learned it as a sociologist. He doesn't really understand uh, sort of the depth of clinical functioning, but he's taught himself and he's taught it to his kids. And he's, and he, you know, so he gets up to somebody and he's working with, you know, because he's doing this basically as a charity, he's working with some really brutalized people. Okay. So he rides up and he's, you know, for 10 bucks, he's moving this guy, <laughs> you, know, you know, he's spending half of his day for $10. So basically a jury guy gets up and he's like, 
this truck sucks. You know, what did you bring this truck for? I thought you had a decent truck. So, you know. So Joe was basically like, hey, in his old days, he would have said, fuck you. You know, yeah, I'm being kind and you're being an asshole and I'm driving off. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that activated. And then he would have ruminated about it and would have been all pissed. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know. So instead, what he did is he immediately triggered calm in himself and was like, huh, okay, yes, I see that I'm pissed. That makes sense. What do I really want to do? And then he was like, well, I wonder why this guy is pissed. You know? Well, shit, if I were moving and I was stressed and I was moving into a crack house from a crack house, I'd probably be pretty pissed off too, right? Mm -hmm. You'd be And so he actually did an emotional jujitsu and basically say, hey, I see it's not the kind of drug. You want to try it anyway? You know, it's probably better than nothing, but it's totally up to you, dude. Mm -hmm. So in other words, he basically just absorbed the hit and then decided, I'll give you, uh, you know, an olive branch, even so. And like very quickly, the guy then went from hot to neutral and over the course of the day went from very appreciative and then thanked the guy and it worked out fine. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so that's just a, an, an everyday example of somebody who, you know, not a psychologist, but just learning to flip the comm switch quickly when he got bumped uh, by, you know, an aggressive and, and totally unfair, you know, kind of attack. And reminded me of your comment because it's like, well, maybe you should just tell the guy to fuck off, you know, if he's an asshole, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? And then welcome to our dilemma. You know, when, when do we expend the olive branch? How? When do we not get taken advantage of? I mean, what if the guy's so... I mean, these are all, you know, that's yeah. why I ask the great questions and I don't know the answers to, but there are principles and processes that might enable us to uh, increase the likelihood of being make adaptive choices. Yeah. Well, this is a beautiful place then to sort of give a nod to a conversation we might have in the future. Certainly there's more to be said. Um, if we were talking for 10 hours, I do think there are some other places we could go. So I'm excited about that. And I will just leave you okay. with one parting image, if I might. Um, because it just kept recurring to me over the last 20 minutes of you, of you speaking okay. and um, sort of a, a gesture towards the, the unknownness of our moment and the nature of all of this. And it's um, what was coming to me was um, the process of the breath. Hey, and this notion of, well, if we were to just, if our experience of duration was so radically changed, maybe from the perspective of a fly, you know, just, you know, without being too technical, you move right. in your hand, you know, and that fly sees it like it's just the slowest thing in the world and just lazily moves out the way. Mm -hmm. It's like the universe or our moment or civilization as a breath. And so far we've just been drawing in and we think we can keep drawing in or breathing out forever, but the breath only makes sense given the relationship between both expansion and contraction and yes. that that moment of the shift and so it's making sense from both sides hey it's like the, the 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 desire to to breathe in but then also that only makes sense if there is also this countervailing movement yeah. of moving of moving the other way and so that dialogical relationship then between expansion and contraction and the nod to the continuity of all of this and so much um, more to come. Um, yeah, I'm just very grateful, very grateful for your time and uh, for, for reaching out and, and for us having this conversation. I, I really look forward to some more. Me too. That, that was beautiful, Tim, actually. That touched me. I, I love that dialectical image of the breathing in and breathing out. Uh, it's a beautiful summary.
If you would like to be part of dialogues like this, group conversations, then you can follow the link to the website in the description. This really is a call to participate. And hey, let's see what we can do. No, no thrill is gone.